Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, or everything, all she had to live on. Shall we pray together as we stand? Father, we're grateful for this living light in your words, this food for um, needy, hungry people like us. Uh, Please um, open your word to us. Help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit. And as you do that, please, uh, if you retrieve that Bible from wherever you've put it and uh, open it back up to uh, the reading that Anya read for us, Mark chapter 12, page 1018. And if you'd like to take notes, you'll probably find some corner of uh, one of the bits of paper you were given as you came in to do that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, I was helping on the youth team at a Christian conference. And over lunch one day, uh, I was talking to uh, one of the other youth leaders. And I was commenting to her on, on how impressed I was with her ability to Uh, remember people's names and circumstances. Uh, It's amazing, really. It it didn't seem to matter how long it was since you'd last seen Mel. Uh, She always remembered your name and enough about your situation so that she could ask how things were going. And it's really impressive. And and we were talking about how important this was and uh, how it was a good way to show love and care for other people. Moments later, we stood up to go and collect our food, uh, at which point I bumped into a young guy who I didn't recognise, so I thought I'd be polite and said, hello, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think we've met uh, before. You can tell where this is going, don't you? <laughs> uh, at which point he replied, uh, don't you remember, uh, I was here last year. I felt a bit uncomfortable about that, but he went on. Uh, and a couple of years before that, I was in your small group Bible study. <laughs> Things were getting worse, <laughs> but he wasn't finished. And then he said, oh, and I know you from Fullwood as well. 
sometimes I visit the church there. And then to cap it all off, he told me that the reason that he sometimes visits this church is that he's dating someone in the church family who just happens to be the daughter of a family that we know really, really well. And when you consider the conversation I had just been having with Mel, the whole thing was pretty embarrassing. Not recognising someone you really ought to is just embarrassing. In fact, when we first moved to Sheffield and I joined the staff team here, um, I had the the habit of of just sort of smiling inanely at anyone I passed in Fullwood Village, just in case they were someone from the church (laughs) whose face and name I really was supposed to have learnt by now. And I reckon to this day there are a whole string of people in Fullwood who just think, there goes that crazy guy who keeps looking at me like that. Not recognising someone you ought to is just a bit embarrassing. And it's a little bit like that in Mark chapter 12. But in fact, it's more than embarrassing for those who who do not or just will not recognise Jesus. It's hugely ironic and it's terribly sad. Now, earlier on, we had the passage read for us that we're going to especially focus on. But we really need to get to grips with this whole section um, of Mark's gospel if we're going to get the full picture and if you were to read it through chapter 12 you'd see that our little section forms part of a a wider uh, dialogue Uh, although I mean dialogue's probably putting it a little bit uh, politely you'd probably better call it a a tense heated uh, debate between Jesus on the one hand and a bunch of uh, religious leaders now these people really really don't like Jesus Uh, they certainly don't have any respect for his authority or anything like that If you were just to turn back to chapter 11 and verse 28, just a page or so back, you'll see that this bunch of religious leaders really don't like some of the things that Jesus has been doing, and they come to him, I guess, to take him down a peg or two, and they say this, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? See, as far as the the religious establishment are concerned, religious life in Israel was, was their preserve, and their territory. It was their gig, if you like. But then along comes Jesus, and he's cleared out the temple, and he's interpreting the scriptures, and he's healing on the Sabbath, and he's going to parties with all the wrong crowds. And more than that, he's claiming to do things like forgive sins. And it just seems like he's the one with spiritual authority. Or at least that's what the crowd seem to think. And I don't know, maybe that's what stings most for the teachers of the law. Because when it comes to the crowds, when it comes to the the people, we heard in our reading that that they were the ones who really liked to be the centre of attention. Did you hear it? They're the ones who like to walk around in the flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and all the rest of it. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem in, in this section, as he comes, more than that, to the temple, which is the heart of religious life, well, you can see that the stage is set for a big conflict. And since this religious lot are probably a bit scared of the crowds who all seem to love Jesus, they, they don't go for an open attack on Jesus, not yet, at least, anyway. And instead, they come with a series of questions. So if you want to take notes, there's the first heading, question time. Don't get me wrong, though, they're not inquisitive. Uh, they're not hungry to learn from the master teacher or, or anything like that. These questions are slippery and vindictive. They're trying to catch Jesus out. They're trying to coax coax him into saying something that he'll regret. And first up, have a look, chapter 12, verse 13. First up come the Pharisees, and they try to trick him with this uh, question about paying taxes to Caesar. You, you You may know the story. And I guess that they're doing that in the hope that he'll 
well, either upset the crowds or the Romans or, or both. But Jesus is wise to it and he gives a brilliant answer. Skip down to chapter 12, verse 18. Next, next up come the, the Sadducees. And they're doing that really snide double thing of uh, trying to ask a question to prove Jesus wrong and also trying to prove their point at the same time. Don't you hate it, hate it when people ask questions like that? And since their particular uh, theological tennis ball of choice is the belief that there's no resurrection, they, they lob in this deliberately ridiculous story about, well, I call it one bride for seven brothers or something like that. Uh, but Jesus isn't having any of it. And he swats that one away too. He gives a brilliant answer. And then last of all, look down to verse 28, comes the teacher of the law. Now the teacher of the law is a little bit better. And you do get the sense that he is interested a little bit at least in Jesus' answer. And in fact, Jesus commends him for that. But the fact remains, he's still come to sit in judgment on Jesus and on the answers that Jesus gives. And so through this what really is a barrage of accusations thinly veiled as questions Jesus answers each of these people one after the other so superbly that we end up in chapter 12 verse 34 have a look there no one dared ask him any more questions one after another they've lined up to play a round of what I like to call theological chess with Jesus See, the trouble is, though, if you want to play theological chess, if you want to outmaneuver your opponent in debates, if you want to prove your superiority by tying your opponent in scriptural knots, then you're best off not choosing the omnipotent Son of God as your opponent. And so they just end up silenced. And then, out of the silence, and this is the start of our passage, which I bet you thought we were never going to get to, with every mouth silenced, Well then, Jesus takes the floor and Jesus steps forward and guess what? He has a question of his own. There's the second point, Jesus' question. Verse 35, Jesus asks, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Well, the crowd might love it, but I'm not sure we all did when we heard it just now. I mean, I guess we're thinking, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Well, I think Jesus is doing two big things here. The first is this. He's just playing them at their own game. See, his question, do you see, it addresses the teachers of the law, the very people who've just been queuing up to try and coax him into saying something he'll regress. One after another, these people have come to Jesus to play theological chess, to catch him out, to prove him wrong, to trap him in his words. And so Jesus says, you want to come and sit in judgment on Jesus? You want to play? You want to go? All right then. And Jesus lobs in a Rubik's Cube of a theological conundrum. And the crowd just love it. You see that in verse 37? They love it. I I guess that's because these high and mighty religious types, the great teachers of the scriptures, if I'm allowed to say this, just got totally owned by a carpenter's son from Nazareth, which means he beat them. But look, I, I guess if you're the son of God, then if you wanted to, you could win a game of theological chess anywhere you like. The question is, why does Jesus say this? You know, why all this stuff about... David and all these 
lords and stuff. What's the point he's making? I guess to us, it just sounds a bit strange. But to his audience, you see, it wouldn't have sounded strange at all. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, which would have been really, really well known at the time. And remember, especially to this audience, he's talking to the teachers of the law. If anyone knows the Old Testament, then these people do. And Psalm 110, it, it, had become, it had come to be understood, rightly, I think, that, that though it was a psalm written centuries before, it was actually looking forward to and speaking of a coming Messiah or Christ figure. Those two words just mean the same thing. And those who studied the Old Testament scriptures, like the people before Jesus, were looking forward to this figure coming, who, who would be in some way, anyway, a saviour and a rescuer, a deliverer, a sent from God to, in some way at least, restore the fortunes of God's people, which frankly had gone so badly wrong, largely, largely as a result of their own disobedience. But more than that, this Messiah figure prophesied, uh, promised so long ago, uh, would be the son of, the descendant of, um, another key prominent leader in Israel's past, that is King David. And hence it was said, again, rightly, verse 35, that the Christ, which remember just means Messiah, the Christ would be the, quote, son of David, one of his descendants. Stay with me. Here's how the logic of the quote from Psalm 110 works. David is speaking, King David himself, and he says, the Lord said to my Lord. That's the first bit. Now, there are two lords there, right? The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the first, the Lord, is Yahweh, God, God the Father, if you like. And the second was understood, rightly, by the teachers of the law, to be this Christ or Messiah figure. So if you want the 2014 Idiot's Guide translation, it might go like this. God the Father said to the Messiah. And if you need any more convincing that this second Lord figure is this powerful Messiah, then, then just look at what Yahweh, what God, will do for him. Read on. He says, sit at my right hand. In other words, assume a position of absolute power and authority. Read on, until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, everyone and everything will be subservient before you. And when you put it that way, you can kind of understand why David thinks it's right to call this Messiah figure Lord. But here's the problem that that Jesus poses. How many fathers do you know who, who bow before their son as Lord? It's just not how their whole hereditary succession thing works. Especially not in the ancient world, and especially not when the father in question is the great King David. So Jesus poses the question, verse 37, David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? How is it right for the great King David to call someone Lord who is just merely one of his descendants? And I guess the religious types don't really have an answer because Mark just records the crowds grinning at the whole situation. But what is the answer to Jesus' question? And why does it matter? And what on earth is he driving at here? 
Well, if this Messiah figure, the, the one on, whom's, on whom Israel's hopes hung for, for forgiveness and restoration and a brighter future, if this Messiah figure it is only, merely, just a son of David, in other words, a plain old flesh and blood descendant from the line of David, then the language that gets used about him just, just seems a bit overblown, doesn't it? Sit at my right hand, enemies under your feet. Actually, it's funny, just a couple of chapters ago, some of Jesus' disciples, who I guess were feeling in a bullish mood, um, asked Jesus a similar question. You know, when you come in your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Jesus just says, no, you don't know what you're talking about. The Messiah must be a human descendant of David. But in order for David to call him Lord, he, he also must be so much more than that. See, yes, the Messiah must be a son of David, but he also must be the one who sits at God's right hand. If you like, he must be a human son of David, but he also must be a divine son of God. Fully human, fully divine. In other words, there's at least, a, if I can put it this way, a twofold criteria for the Messiah. That is human son of David, yet divine son of God. And here are these religious leaders who I guess have got the equivalent of theology PhDs coming out of their ears who really should have known better and they've just spent the preceding chapters questioning Jesus' authority, plotting to kill him. And do you know what the huge crushing irony is through this whole section? The only person in the course of human history who could possibly, who could absolutely fulfill both these criteria, son of David, son of God, well, he's standing right in front of them. And they have spent the last chapter trying to undermine his authority, trying to catch him out, trying to sit in judgment on him. If you like, they've come to sit in judgment on the one who one day will sit at the right hand of God and judge the world. They've come to oppose the one whose enemies God will lay at his feet. See, in the end, their problem, it's not just a theological one. I mean, to be sure, they've, they've come to Jesus to play a game of, of theological chess, and so Jesus takes them up on those terms. But if you read on, you, you'll see what their real issue is. Verse 38. I guess Jesus said this, by the way, in the hearing of the, of the teachers of the law. So I guess it makes for a tense moment. Jesus says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at banquets. In other words, their real problem, it's, it's not just a head problem, if you like. It's not just that they haven't understood the, the nuance of messianic theology. It's a heart problem. Because their world, it's just all about them. The religious leaders are just the centre of their own universe. And in that universe, there is no room for this kind of authoritative Messiah, this leader of God's people. From what you hear of them, it kind of sounds like they feel pretty happy fulfilling that role themselves. And they take great delight in enjoying the spoils of their elevated position in society. 
and to maintain this position of power and prestige at the top of the social ladder. Well, they're happy to trample on those at the bottom. Did you hear verse 40? They devour widows' houses. And even their prayers to God are really all about them. It's no surprise then to hear Jesus, verse 40, say, such men will be punished most severely. I suppose the question this raises for us is this. How do you come to Jesus? How do you approach him? I mean, do you you come with a heart that's ready to learn? Or a heart that, if you're honest, is come to judge? Like, are you hungry for truth? Or are you just looking for another reason to dismiss Jesus? Look, if you're, if you're a guest here today, perhaps you're just listening in, you're interested in the Christian faith, you're not really sure what you make of it, you've got a load of questions. Know this, we love here, we love questions about Jesus. We think as well that there are satisfying and well-reasoned answers to many of the objections to the Christian faith that you might have. In fact, uh, several times a year we run entire courses encouraging, helping, uh, giving people opportunity to ask questions. We love and value questions. But look, whether you're a Christian here or not, whoever you are, this passage says to us, just be careful. Be careful how you approach Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, it just seems to be the case again and again that those who come to Jesus humbly, searching, longing for truth, find it. But on the other hand, those who come to sit in judgment over Jesus or to find another reason to dismiss him, well, they end up judged and dismissed themselves. And I think that warning goes for God's word more widely as well. Do you remember that the reverence with which Jesus talked about Psalm 110? He said, David said, speaking by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus saw the things that King David had said in Psalm 110 as having the full authority of God. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, we've got to approach God's word in the Bible with this same humble attitude. And look, it is very easy in a church like ours, which says all the right things about honoring God's word, about listening carefully to what he says. It's very easy to be here, isn't it? But just to pay lip service to those things. I don't know how that happens for you. Maybe your small group discussions have just become a theoretical talking shop where where no one really engages their hearts with the truth and the content of God's word. Or maybe you just don't read the Bible anymore. Or perhaps when it comes to Sunday sermons, you give so much time to judging the performance of the preacher that, that really your heart shut down to listening to the word of God a long time ago. Well, look, perhaps like these Pharisees and teachers of the law, your way of keeping Jesus and his word at arm's length is that you just love endless theoretical, theological debate. Now, don't misunderstand. Careful, rigorous study of God's word is essential, but it's only good study if it leads us closer to God and leaves us more humbly dependent on his son, Jesus. It's embarrassing when you don't recognize someone you should. 
the teachers of the law didn't or wouldn't recognize Jesus, the son of David, the authoritative Messiah. And in the end, it was because they were just too bound up, too concerned with themselves. But as we end, there is another option. And wonderfully, Mark gives us some windows into an alternative response, if you like, to Jesus. So just flip back a few pages to chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you may know the rest of the story. Jesus heals him. So here is a, a man. I think Mark loves irony because here's a blind man. In for, for all the religious leaders didn't see who Jesus was. Here is a blind man who sees in Jesus something of this authoritative Messiah figure. He he sees in Jesus, here is the man who has come to help, to save, to rescue. What what did he call him? Son of David. And he comes to Jesus in, in quite a different way from these religious leaders, doesn't he? He's got nothing to prove. He's certainly got nothing to give. He comes to Jesus in desperate need And he gains everything from him. Mark gives us one more glorious alternative. Skip back to our passage in chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this widow has put, in, has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything. Now there's, I'm sure, tons more to be said about Bartimaeus and about this widow But here are two disciples who approach Jesus in a way quite unlike the religious leaders. See, Bartimaeus, on on the one hand, sees his desperate needs to receive everything from Jesus. And the widow, on the other, rightly gives all she has to Jesus. And together, together, well, there is a good model of discipleship for us. So think about how you approach Jesus and his word. And fight with all your might that, that proud tendency to, to be like one of these Pharisees and teachers of the law and to love the spiritual limelight. It is easy to say things like that and very much harder to do. Isn't it good when you see a Christian brother or sister who is just as happy Uh, to go and clean a toilet as to do what I'm doing now because both are wonderful privileges because we get to serve the Lord Jesus fight with all your might the proud tendency to love the spiritual limelight and then lastly like Bartimaeus like the widow see your need 
come hungrily and humbly to Jesus, ready to hear from him, ready to learn from him, ready to receive from him the forgiveness of sins we all so desperately need. And then like the widow, give all you have in service to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father God, that you know us through and through and that your word speaks so incisively into our hearts. Thank you for the things that we're warned about here and the ways of approaching you that we're encouraged toward. Please help us, Father, to be like Bartimaeus. Help us to see our need of you. And please help us to be like the widow, giving all we have to serve you. Keep us from loving the spiritual limelight. Forgive us for our pride. In Jesus' name, amen.